Hello. Over the past few weeks, I've shared with you a few milestones that we've reached. We recently crossed the 20,000 and are rapidly moving towards 25,000 downloads. According to Listen Notes, The Voices of War is still trending in the top 3% of all podcasts globally. So if you haven't yet given us a five-star rating or written a review, maybe consider doing that now. If easier, maybe you can share this episode with your followers on social media. Okay, let's go and meet our next guest, a former colleague of mine and a dear friend, Ariane Verderen. My guest today is Ariane Verduren, who has a background in communication studies and works as a consultant and lecturer in the field of intercultural communication and competence. He is associated with the Royal Tropical Institute, a knowledge center in Amsterdam, and until recently lectured at the Master in Communications program at University of Gothenburg. He is a co-author, together with Dr. Edwin Hoffman, of the book Diversity Competence, Cultures Don't Meet, People Do which is a deep dive into improving our individual and collective intercultural competence. Adian has authored various other publications on intercultural communication, intercultural competence, cultural diversity, and multiculturalism. Throughout the 15 years he has spent in the field, he has consulted with various organizations ranging from state departments to multinationals and NGOs on harnessing more effective international and intercultural cooperation. He is a frequent speaker on these topics and is someone who connects theory with practitioners facing intercultural situations every day in the field. Ariane, it is a uh, great pleasure to host you. Welcome to the Voices of War. Thanks very much. It's my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation, and uh, I've been looking forward greatly to this. And, and I think a, a, a full disclosure is uh, is in order as well. So uh, right. I've, I've, I've mentioned you and discussions from you, and I've quoted you, uh, on this podcast, that. yeah, <laughs> at least four or five times, you know, particularly as cultures don't meet, people do. Uh, and for right. my audience, uh, Adrian and I were, uh, we were colleagues back at the University of Gothenburg. Uh, his, he was there uh, for, for a fair bit longer than me, but uh, we were uh, colleagues lecturing. Uh, I was particularly focused on interpersonal communication uh, and Adrian was on intercultural, right. but I certainly helped out uh, on some of his, uh, yes, some of his lessons Absolutely. as well. Absolutely. Uh, so, so we go some way back, and we have uh, we have uh, chewed over this topic many a time. Yeah, um, it, we do. It's not the first time we talk about it. I guess that's uh, what yeah. a full disclosure safe to say, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Uh, so maybe to get us started, um, mm. what brought you into the field of culture and intercultural communication in the first place? Right. Um, that's always an interesting question, uh, and makes me wonder where to start, but I'll, I'll, since we started full disclosure, I go all the way back. Mm-hmm. So, um, it, it's also my experience that many people working in this field have some kind of, you know, personal background or personal motive why they ended up there. As you may or may not have been able to tell by my name, I'm from the Netherlands. Um, and for some reason, intercultural communication is quite big in the Netherlands. I don't really know why that is. I was actually going to ask you that, but I've, you know, what, okay. I, well, we'll why? save that for later. You know, we've got Trompenars and, uh, yeah. Exactly, yeah, yeah. all the big guys. Hofstede, all the big Um, names. And, uh, well, anyway, um, uh, back on topic. So I grew up in Amsterdam, which, uh, for the record, according to many statistics, is is the most multicultural city in the world, measured by uh, the amount of nationalities, at least. I myself grew up in a mixed Dutch-Indonesian family. My father was born and raised in Indonesia. 
uh, as Indonesia was a, a colony of the Netherlands for a very long time. Hmm. Uh, some listeners might know, especially the ones in Australia. Yeah. And um, I grew up in a suburb to Amsterdam, which is uh, has a bit of a reputation, I guess you could say, comparable to, let's say, the Bronx or Harlem in New York uh, for being very multicultural, uh, also known for, yeah, I guess, you know, a lot of big city problems. And um, in spite of their reputation, I had a very happy childhood there. I grew up in, a, in an environment with, yeah, I guess, characterized by diversity, I guess you could say, mm-hmm. already back in the 80s, right? So before this was politicized. And for me, this was my, this was my, this was the natural state for me. This was, this was for me very normal. And it took me a while when I grew up to realize this was not normal to many other people. And uh, I guess there was a shift in the Netherlands, which happened in many European countries. But I think the shift in the Netherlands was very extreme, going from a, uh, let's say, general discourse politically and a general um, policy to some to, to a large extent that promoted multiculturalism, that saw this something positive. I'm not saying this was always profound, but at least this was the official rhetoric. Mm-hmm. And then came September 11. And mm-hmm. uh, there have been analysts that have said there's no country where the political shift has been as radical mm-hmm. after September 11 as in the Netherlands. Oh, wow. We don't have to deep dive for the reasons for that, but the discourse very much shifted to you know from you know this is something positive and we should cherish this to we need to acknowledge this is a problem multiculturalism has failed integration whatever it may be has failed uh we need to emphasize all the problems and the shadow sides of this situation um at that point i was graduating and i i realized deeply that both intellectually but also personally this was something that affected me uh because my reality under which i had grown up all of a sudden came under fire, all of a sudden was problematized. And of course, I was willing to discuss it on any kind of level and, 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 and acknowledge that there are challenges. Mm. But, but it went into a ex- direction that was very extreme, this kind of us versus them scenario. Um, and I found that, you know, to be honest, I found it intellectually and academically compelling, but it also personally affected me. And it was just when I was graduating and trying to figure out what to do with the rest of my life. Uh, and at that point, I didn't really have a clue uh, i think my best guess was to become a sports journalist because i <laughs> i liked football and i liked uh journalism but mm. then uh well, well you're from I the should... netherlands so that's a given yeah <laughs> right uh let's talk about this week's football results <laughs> no that's not um so, so um uh another amsterdam side of me but but um yeah so that came together and uh i guess i i didn't expect necessarily that i would work with it I guess I'm halfway in my career or something. Uh, yeah. I'll still be working with it. Here I am. Yeah. There's definitely one thing. I mean, I know you said we don't have to deep dive into it, but I'm really interested uh, when you said that, you know, the Netherlands was the discourse, social mm. discourse shifted most radically post 9-11. Why is that the case? I mean, without going too deeply into it, but that's, that's a, especially yeah. given the, the, the location of the Netherlands um, mm. in, in Europe, um, and its multicultural base, why was that the case? Right. I mean, t- to be honest, there's only guesses, but there's probably uh, estimated guesses and, mm. and, and less estimated guesses. But I think part of the reality is that it wasn't as good as we'd like to think. So the, the Netherlands has this image and strong self-image of tolerance, mm. uh, of diversity. It, it's, it's partly profound, but as with any image, there is a performative aspect to it, right? Where we like to believe that of ourselves so much mm. and we cherish this image in spite of that the reality may not, may not always meet 
you know, mm-hmm. that standard. And even historically, if we look back on that, um, you know, there's many instances where you can say, well, the Netherlands wasn't as tolerant or that accepting of difference or whatever you want to call it. In reality, I mean, look, like we just mentioned the colonial past, right? I mean, um, you know, so there's many instances where that self-image was very flattering, even though in, in other ways, you know, it might be profound, but in other ways, it was, was way too self-flattering. So I think that just fell apart. That's part of it. And the other side is that um, I think one of the explanations is particularly that, of course, September 11th and later other events in the Netherlands mainly had to do with uh, with Islamism, with radicalism, with jihadism. And the Netherlands has a history of rebelling against religion as such. So... Um, the Netherlands was the most religious country in Europe, measured by church attendance in the early 20th century, and mm. almost completely secularized, or completely secularized, but strongly rebelled against mm. it in the 1960s mm. because people felt they were suffocating in these small religious communities because there was also religious pluralism. So there was no state religion, but mm. there were a lot of different conjugations and, and subcurrents of religion that were all accommodated, meaning that people lived in these small religious communities. Mm. Felt they were suffocating, rebelled against it in the 60s, and there was a strong kind of secular, but I would even say anti-religious current. And this was, I think, a bit suppressed and at the same time, with this notion of multiculturalism and tolerance. But once September 11 happened, I think, you know, this this current just got momentum. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and there was no... And they had some rot There's no, ground, been no other way. Hmm. Sorry. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. Had some had some rot around. Yeah. There was no other Western country with as strong a backlash, and I'm talking about a violent backlash in terms of you know violence against mosques, uh, Islamic shops, uh, Islamic schools, hmm. uh, as the Netherlands. There's been a great, great number of incidents, which is which is something often you know goes unheard, but that did happen. Yeah, I I actually had no idea. That's uh, that is really interesting to hear. Um, Unfortunately. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also interesting to hear that, uh, I guess, the 60s, which I guess would then make sense, would at least in part explain uh, why there are so many really big names in the intercultural space mm-hmm. that are from the Netherlands, right? Because if that was the push, uh, you know, to rebel True. against this kind of yeah. eco chambers and, and try, and, yeah. and of course, globally, that was also the kind of growth of the idea of diversity, uh, etc. Uh, but I think also culture finds its roots. Or, do you, or maybe I should ask you the question, where does the idea of culture come from? Right. Or a study That's of culture? That's a really good question. And one I, I really like to talk about, uh, which is a good bridge to the field of intercultural communication as well, uh, because I think it really helps our understanding of, of the, you know, some of the challenges, actually, if we know where that whole notion comes from, right? So people didn't, you know, it didn't come falling from the sky talking about mm. culture. We didn't, you know, we weren't born using that word. We learned it somewhere. Mm. Um, and it originates from somewhere. And um, I think, you know, I'm not a historian, but I think the most um, useful uh, 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 like time frame is to go back to the time of nation building and the time of uh, late colonialism, which kind of coincided more or less. And um, until that point, the word culture was used, but it was used in a kind of gradual sense mm. in terms of you have more or less culture. So culture was almost a synonym for civilization, mm. right? So obviously in the colonial system, there was this idea of there's the civilized and the less civilized and mm. even the uncivilized. And part of that was, you know, it was known as the white man's burden of the colonial powers was to civilize 
half civilized and to some degree uncivilized, there was discussion of whether that was possible. So culture was something that you had to a low, you know, more or lesser degree. And then enter uh, a revolutionary group of people, I guess, in a sense, which was the cultural anthropologists, early anthropologists mm. like Margaret Mead and, and Malinowski and these kind of people mm. who, uh, in a time when there was discussion and, 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 you know, some decolonization movements started to happen. And they uh, started to study these groups that supposedly were uncultured and uncivilized. And they came with a literary uh, revolutionary conclusion, which is it's not that these people have less culture than we do. It's just that they have an entirely different culture mm. than we do. They have a different system of meaning making of their everyday lives, which is just as complex and just as profound as ours, but it's just different. And because we are used to seeing the world in our way, we don't recognize this. We see them as uncivilized, but they're highly civilized in their own way. Mm. And I really like to call this literally a revolutionary idea, mm. because if you take that to heart and you accept that, it means that you come to the conclusion that if that is the case, you know, they have the right over their own destiny. Who are we to try to civilize them? Mm. Um, so it was a very profound, a very revolutionary idea. And, 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 you know, I like to think of, if we look at the field also of intercultural communication, and I think many of our common sense and political discussions about culture, this is still how we view culture, right? It's something that people are mm. encapsulated into, defines who they are, defines their reality, and makes them profoundly different from, mm. let's say, us. Um, mm. And I think to some degree, this idea is still useful, but more and more people, including myself, have started to say, well, you know, fair enough. This was an important argument, an important revolutionary yeah. idea. But the world that we live in nowadays looks at the same time vastly different than that of the early anthropologists. Mm. So we need to come to terms at the same time with the reality that, yes, on the one hand, it's a useful concept, but we need to be aware of the of the pitfalls at the same time. And I think it's interesting. I didn't think about this before, but that that's a, it's a nice, um, how do you call it? Uh, it comes back to the discussion we had about multiculturalism. I think one of the things that failed or that made it difficult in the, in the Netherlands was there was this push of this narrative of we need to accept these people because they have these entirely different cultures, right? So we what was known is we culturalized that situation. Mm -hmm. We saw everything through the lens of cultural difference, which also meant that the moment that we associate this with problems, and we see there's problems in multicultural societies, the inevitable conclusion is, well, if we need to respect them for their difference, if, if, if these people, you know, they, us versus mm. them, if they cause problems, it's also because of their cultures. Mm. Yeah. So we need to push back on that. We need to reject it. And to some degree, we even need to push it out. So mm. we need to wonder if that whole narrative, that whole discourse, that whole story about culture, again, you know, all the, one of my main convictions is all ideas exist in a certain political and historical time, which we yeah. need to use to understand that idea. We need to yeah. understand how useful that is. And we need to update, I think, our cultural concept to the current situation where people don't live in, you know, uh, let's say on different cultural islands, on different mm. continents anymore. But we live together uh, either literally because we live in the same street mm. or because we are connected through the internet and you know, through other affiliations throughout the world much more deeply than we were 100 years ago. So if I'm reading you, if I'm understanding you correctly, I mean, it all started with, you know, cultural relativism. I guess, you know, we realized that culture, exactly. as we come to understand it, is relative to the ecosystem within which it exists, or in fact, culture is the ecosystem, uh, right, that we find exactly. in a different place. 
And whilst that is a noble recognition, and I think that afforded many of the uh, victims of colonization uh, mm-hmm. a, a voice, uh, I guess, there are also issues that come with it, right? Um, exactly. There are issues with cultural relativism, I think. And, mm-hmm. and if, I mean, it's a in a globalized world, it's very difficult for us to stand by to and 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 say it's okay that certain cultural practices, as they come to be described, you know, female genital mutilation being one, um, right. that that we can accept that, right? Right. Um, as hey, it's merely the culture. Right. So how how do we deal with that? Right. So that because that's the issue that I think you you're, you're alluding to, right? That that we're blending. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a, that's a profound issue. Uh, and it's actually one of the issues we try to address in our book. So I feel that in the field of intercultural communication, uh, again, strongly has its roots in this, as you very rightfully say, this notion of cultural relativism as again, which you can summarize, it's not less or better or worse. It's just different, right? Mm -hmm. Which has its merits, but as you say, has also its limitations because then all of a sudden we need to cooperate and coexist and it becomes a lot more difficult than to just say like, Oh, I'll let it go because that's their culture. And it can even lead to this kind of fight or flight reaction. I think that we're seeing towards multiculturalism Mm -hmm. by saying, well, if that's their culture, then, you know, let them go back. Mm, Um, So in our book, we try to distinguish between different, um, frameworks like thought frameworks or ideas about this notion of ethics which is basically what it comes down to in, in intercultural affairs and the first frame of reference would be what we call universalism which is the notion that there is one system of thought of ideas of of, of norms basically which is superior compared to others which which sounds really bad right mm. and it sounds like mm. what we talked about before with colonialism but doesn't need to be right mm. Uh, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, of course, is a universalistic system of thought. Um, and I think universalism sometimes has a bad rep, but it has its merits if, I think, it's something that we also project on our own mm. so, you know, so-called culture. If we also agree that, you know, um, there's a universal, there's an argument to say that gender equality should be universal, you mm. know, merit or value we aspire to, which means that we can we can criticize groups for, for not living up to that. But, it, you know, the boomerang comes back if we then look mm. at ourselves and say, well, we're probably not perfect ourselves, right? Mm. Mm. I think in that sense, universalism could work, but it very easily deteriorates into something we call monism, which basically means there's one frame of reference, one, you know, one set of ideas and norms, which is better and happens to be mine, mm. right? Mm. And then you're right back at square one. Yeah. With there's, a power, there's a power dynamic deeply embedded within the idea of, you know, universalism. And, and that's just the, the it's my exactly. way, the highway kind of thing. Yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. And it can even become paternalistic, right? Uh, because it's better for you to become more like me. Trust me on this, mm. right? Mm. So it becomes a simulationist or even colonialist, right? Again, mm. the white man's burden was basically driven by that idea. Mm. So it has its merits, but it has its strong pitfalls. And then again, relativism came as a way to kind of counter that, uh, and again, you need to see that in a time and, and makes people aware of profound differences in our experience, profound differences in, in our meaning making systems and the symbols we use and how we understand the world. Uh, and it has the implicit notion of, uh, or often actually impl- explicit notion that the way to deal with that is acceptance and tolerance. But as you just said, and, and female genital mutilation is the archetypical yeah. example of that. Yeah, that's right. Maybe things that we can't live with. 
Hmm. Um, See, I'll just jump in there because I think this will this particular point will resonate with a lot of my audience because just about every military member that has deployed to, hmm. you know, the Middle East, uh, uh, you know, Afghanistan, places that function vastly differently to what we're used to uh, in the Western right. world. Just about every one of those people will come back or has a story where they've experienced that very idea of cultural relativism uh, and how right. painful that is. Now, some even right. come back with moral injury because of it, because they were right. put in a position where mm -hmm. they were forced to observe something that in our culture would be abhorrent the way, say, children would be treated or, you know, women would right. be treated. But in many ways, they couldn't do anything. Their hands were tied right. because it wasn't right. their place to, you know, change people's culture. So this is something, th th this idea of th this clash mm. uh, is, is something that's, that's, that's real, that's experienced by, and I'm sure it's not just soldiers. I'm sure it's people in the development industry as well, uh, you know, uh, in the medical profession who go overseas to help. You know, th th this is a real issue, this cultural Absolutely. relativism when you when you face when when you face with it there and then can have a profound impact uh on, on someone but sorry you were, you were about to say something i didn't mean to interrupt you but i just wanted to just wanted to kind of double click on that point because i think it's a really 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 important piece of this idea of absolutely. culture and how we live it absolutely no worries i think that's a very important uh concretization let's say of my point that indeed like relativism sounds like a good idea until you're faced with something that you can't accept you know, it sounds like a good day. We need to accept everything until you can't. And that's, again, when you get the fight or flight reaction and you maybe even get this, this kind of self-criticism or what should I have done. And not saying there's an easy way out of that. Let me, get, let me be completely honest about that. If your circle of influence is limited, you know, that can be really difficult. Uh, but I think it can be better, you know, there are better possibilities to maintain, I think, a sense of self-integrity uh, in those situations. Mm. Uh, and I'll get to that. But Again, so the, that's one pitfall of the relativism is you, you enter into a moral vacuum where you're not supposed to judge, even if you feel you have to. And the other point is, I think that it limits, you know, if you take that to heart, it limits our ability to communicate and to go and, and to engage in dialogue. Because if the notion is that in the end of the day, I can never really understand what happens in that other system, in that other moral universe, um, if, if that is not my moral universe, I can and I can never really understand it how can I actually ever communicate with people? Why would I even engage, mm. right? So mm. it almost discourages people from real interaction, from real dialogue, from real um, conversation. Mm. Mm. So again, I'm not saying there is no easy way out, but I think the choice is to say there is no easy way out and let's, let's engage with that. So and that's mm. the system of pluralism that we advocate, which is um, – merited by by the way by a dutch philosopher called hank posse that already wrote about this in the 90s when no of course he's dutch yeah of course yeah yeah of course yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, my, my reading list might be slightly biased <laughs> i'm guilty of that like anyone no, no, but, absolutely yeah um but interestingly no one picked hardly anyone picked up on that because there was this discussion wasn't as big as it is now right mm, mm, mm. um and he he basically with a very, very long winding philosophical analysis, I think it was his PhD, we tried to go beyond both universalism and beyond relativism in a system he called pluralism. Mm. And pluralism is the system of dialogues that says there is no easy way out to, to assume that someone has the only and superior truth about reality. It, you know, that's a sense of arrogance that historically 
you know, would be falsified every single time that we believe that we have the only truth about reality. Mm. But relativism is also a dead end for the reasons that we just mentioned. So we need to surpass both of these systems. And his system was a system of dialogue mm. where this could only work uh, if we adhere to two, what he called uh, uh, supracultural norms, which is on the one hand, uh, that of dialogue that everyone has at least a moral obligation to explain to others why they do what they do and then explain it to themselves as well, because we're blind to our own cultural beliefs. Mm. But if we're, if we're confronted with others, it might make us think, right? So even if we've grown up with people, you know, we've grown up with the idea that uh, physically disciplining children is, is a great way you know, to get ahead. Um, yeah. That makes sense if we've never seen anything else. But if we're then confronted with people that have other ways, not only should we, you know, might we be uh, uh, um, uh, challenged to, to explain that to other people, but we need to explain it to ourselves while we actually do this. Mm. And the other way is, is non-exclusion. So there's no reason to uh, preventively, you know, uh, limits people, limit people's uh, uh, participation in that exchange. With other, with other, in, in other words, there can be no cultural or religious argument to exclude people. Hmm. Uh, which, because if we allow that, you know, then the whole yeah. thing will fall apart. Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So if we have cultural arguments to say, I don't accept women, you know, uh, people of color, uh, people of other sexual orientations as my equal, then the whole system will fall apart. Yeah. Right? yeah because who could, you know, then everyone can use that argument in any kind of situation. Yeah. Which is not to say it's always easy again, but it, it means again, going into the, the muddy dirty field of conversation, dialoguing, exchanging, negotiating uh, with, with, and I think this is the most important thing without a sense of superiority. So mm. not because I think that my way is better, but because I think there may be basic human values that we can all aspire to uh, that lead us ahead in which I'm not perfect either. And mm. what these basic human values are is something we continuously try to figure out. Mm. Right. It's not mm. because I think, Female genital, female genital mutilation is not a deplorable because I think so, because it doesn't exist in my moral universe. It because if I think about it, inflicting unnecessary pain on people, I think mm. as a human being, sounds yeah. like a bad idea. Yeah, and, and I think that's the, that's the key point. Um, we now know, objectively so, what's good for the human animal, right? Mm. We, you know, we, can, we, we have enough knowledge data points, you know, to know that it's objectively good to live pain-free. <laughs> we know that it's objectively good that, you know, having a higher quality of life where you are healthier is good for the human animal. So, therefore, nutrition, water, shelter. We, exactly. You know, there, are, there is enough knowledge out there it's just how we build that bridge with those who don't necessarily have that knowledge and i think that's you know you keep mentioning the word dialogue and i really like that because dialogue implies a win-win as opposed to a debate right and 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 you know we've talked about this you and i've certainly talked about this uh before but it, you know the difference between a dialogue and debate is that very point that debate is a you know winner takes all type of thing uh, whereas a dialogue is a a uh, 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 win-win situation, exactly. And I guess that's to kind of take it to the to the subtitle of your book, which I which is mm. you know the quote that I've I've cited a number of times in in papers that I've written, and I mention it all the time. I just love it; it's catchy. Um, I teach this stuff, and I and I open up with 
you know, cultures don't meet, people do. Mm. Mm. Because I think it speaks to this very point. But maybe I'll, I'll throw across to you to, to tell me a little bit about how did you come up with that uh, yeah. and, and what does it actually mean? Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks for the references, uh, first of all, obviously. Um, I, I, I'm not even kidding. I, I, you know, anybody that's been in any of my classes uh, over the past year and a half will uh, certainly attest to me using okay. that, uh, that quote. Uh, yeah. There he went again. Uh, better than again today. Uh, I'm guilty of that myself. No, I mean, um, sure. I think uh, basically that, that was, of course, when we started thinking about titles, that was one of the first titles that we, we, uh, we came up with. Because it's it's indeed also a one-liner that we have both used in our session so often. And I think, again, it's interesting. In that context where we have learned to see culture in a certain way, it becomes such an eye-opener for people. Because mm -hmm. on the one hand, yes, you need to have that awareness that there are different realities. And mainly, I think the main thing is that means that my reality is not the only reality, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and for that, this notion of culture is very useful. But at the same time, if then the problem is that it limits our interaction, it limits our capacity to truly connect and engage with others. Uh, because this whole notion of uh, meetings between cultures makes it sound very complicated and mm. very challenging. And I'm not saying it's not complicated and challenging. But the thing is, you can't communicate with the culture. Mm. You know, in a way, cultures don't really exist. It's an abstraction. Again, like we said, it's a concept we invented to mm. analyze the social world. Hmm. Uh, and by the way, most people now social, in social science would acknowledge that you can find culture in any group. You know, it doesn't only exist within national groups that have some magical cultural boundary. Why would hmm. that exist? Well, it's the it idea of imagined communities, right? I mean, that's the Benedict Anderson. I mean, that's exactly. Uh, it's exactly that. It's only it only exists yeah. because we give it, it uh, we bring it into existence. The same as nations, flags, borders, etc., yeah. etc. It is a. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes and, sense. And, and then part of it is to see through that trick and to say, okay, in the end of the day, uh, we might see things differently, uh, as you know, I might as well with my neighbor who happens to have the same nationality. Mm -hmm. We might see things differently as well. But there is a universal process of communication that we can always engage with. And we can always talk to someone. And again, it might be challenging. Mm -hmm. But if we, if we, again, if we approach it as a meeting of cultures, it becomes this very heavy. Um, 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 notion where people might even shy away think, I can't, again, like you said before, I can't change culture. I know you can't. Mm. Um, but you can talk to a person and you can to some degree influence and maybe change a person. So when it comes to these very, very difficult, admittedly, situations that you just sketched, I, you, no, you can't change a whole population's norms mm. around uh, gender relations or about uh, adult-child relations. Uh, and maybe you can even change one person's mind but you can make them think mm. right? you can present them with an alternative without pushing your reality on them and saying like, this is how we do it. You guys need to update, mm. but by being curious about actually what they do and why they do it and explaining maybe how you see things, mm. right? We have a case in our book of two young interns that went to a school. Um, uh, I think it was in Benin and they um, uh, also witnessed that these very kind, sweet colleagues that they worked with on a very regular basis, uh, violated the physical integrity of their students by, by, by corporal punishment, like mm. very severe corporal punishment until children were lying on the floor, mm. crying pain. And they couldn't connect these two things of their sweet, helpful, supportive colleagues with this notion. And um, at least for the time that they were there, they addressed this 
without trying to sound superior, but by trying to understand what they did, what they did, but also tell them what they saw. They said, we see children that have all kinds of reasons, for example, why they're late, that mm-hmm. live in very stressful and, and difficult circumstances, come late uh, and, and, and get flogged. Mm-hmm. And um, we see that they're in pain and we see that they're suffering and it, it, it's very difficult for us to see this. And, you know, I'm not saying this was an easy conversation. As I understand that the principal of the school didn't immediately say, oh, okay, you're absolutely right. We never thought about this. Let's change it. But at least they actually stepped away from corporal punishment for the time that these interns were there. Hmm. And we don't know what happened afterwards. And I'm not hmm. saying it was perfect after, after, you know, ever after, but you, they made them think. Hmm. They made them think. Yeah. And if you don't have the authority to really change things, making people think is a really, really good uh, opportunity. Yeah, and it, it also brings to mind of, of another point. You know, this is this idea that we seem to have embraced of you know nation building uh, in our more recent conflicts, where we'll go and mm. we'll, we'll instill democracy and you know yeah. human rights and so on, without actually understanding the local context um, and actually understanding what is the you know every human behavior has a reason for existing, right? right? So right. to unpack that. As opposed to, like you were saying, you, you don't just force your opinions on it. You need to understand, firstly, what's driving this behavior and where the roots are. And I don't think, and this is certainly something I've, I've addressed in this podcast with various guests about, and a prime example that's always, that always comes up is Afghanistan, where right. we embraced such black and white narratives of, you know, anybody that's shooting at us is Taliban and, you know, right. anybody that smiles at us is on our side. You know, I'm simplifying it, but that was generally the narrative that uh, we'd like to embrace. But when mm-hmm. you start peeling underneath that, there's an entire ecosystem that exists of how power is shared or how beliefs and values influence um, who's who, uh, how the money flow will influence the right. environment, something that we never really understood but this is all part of this ecosystem that we then slap a label on and we call it culture maybe this is a a good time to ask how do you define culture right because i think we need to zero in on that a little bit so that we have because there are so many definitions right i mean it is one of those terms but how do you define culture how do you view it uh, it's a really good question. And as you said, there isn't it a multitude of, of definitions. And it, it's safe to say that in social science, it's one of the most controversial concepts to define. We use one mm. definition in our book, which is honestly just a summary of many other definitions, which mm. is to say culture is a complex set of habits that characterize a social group. Mm. Um, and yeah. why I like to call it that is because that implies it is not a thing. You know, mm. it's not you know, there's culture lying around somewhere and, you know, you can draw a clear line around a group of people and say, well, this is culture. It's always been there. You know, we'll always be like this, uh, which again, in many of those discussions, I think uh, takes away so many nuances around, for example, democracy and whatnot mm. and state nation building that we need to understand what's going on. And mm. uh, it also means it can apply to any group and it can apply on different levels, right? In Afghanistan, probably the, 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 the culture, I'm not a, any, I'm anything but an Afghanistan expert, mm-hmm. but I, I feel very secure to say that there's probably very strong regional differences in how people behave and how they live and how they see the world. Mm-hmm. There's differences in different social levels between the upper class and the middle class and the, you know, the working mm-hmm. class. Really. Mm-hmm. 
um, there's different, there's still different religions and different religious currents within uh, Afghanistan, mm. right? Yeah. And another important point is if we see it as a complex set of habits, habits can change. Uh, you know, there's the famous pictures of Afghani uh, women in the 1960s in Kabul working mm. around with short skirts. Mm. So there's no timeless uh, Afghan culture that, 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 you know, was, was shot into Afghanistan at some point and never changed and explains everything that happens. You know, it's mm. a complex set of events that builds people's perception of reality. And that part of that is, you know, political developments that happened in the last decades. I won't go into detail and I'm not an expert, but, you know, from what I know and my knowledge, you know, there's many political events, global, you know, global political events that made certain branches of, of religious interpretations become dominant in Afghanistan that were not dominant before. Hmm. And that shaped people's worldview. And these got momentum, they got power, they got money, they got yeah. weapons. Yeah. And, you know, what we're looking now is the result of many of those developments. And again, I'm not an expert in Afghanistan, but because, you know, faced by the way that I look at culture, yeah. this is what I see. Yeah. And I really like the the idea that it's a complex set of habits because, and as you said, habits can change, but also habits are oftentimes non-conscious, right? Which is a habit, Absolutely. you know, it's a, you just do it. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a behavior that's developed over time. Um, you know, I just think about myself as a, as a formerly a heavy smoker. It was a habit <laughs> to smoke, you know, at certain events, you know, in the morning with my coffee, I would have a cigarette. I wouldn't even think about it. And, and this is why I really like your, your point about dialogue because once you start identifying and mentioning to people, Hey, this is, you know, the way you do things is definitely different the way we do it. I wonder why you do it. Um, mm. Even that, even that simple question will absolutely ask someone to reflect on their own behaviors that they might never have actually asked the question. What you know? Why do we beat children for being for being late? You know, why do we flog them? Is that actually necessary? While, like you said, you might not change much. You know, there's a chance that you'll plant a seed. Of questions, exactly. you create a sufficient bumper for someone to make him think of an alternative, uh, and I guess that's that's what we, you know, that's how culture changes. And culture is, you know, uh, uh, fifty years ago, uh, you know, in Australia, which is a progressive, uh, you know, democracy, mm. gay and lesbian marriage was uh, a, a pipe dream. Uh, you know, exactly. Whereas now it's not even a, you know, well, in some circles probably still is an issue, but. Broadly yeah. speaking, it's not it's not even discussed, right? So no. culture culture morphs uh, um, and changes. So and in the book, you so so you have a particular model that right. you use, right? The topoi model. What what is the model? Describe the model. Right. Yes, uh, there is a model, and uh, most of it hasn't because I'm I personally I don't like models myself, right? So. Mm -hmm. um, there is a model, but you know, there's there's at the same time I have a lot of um, disclaimers about how to use models in reality. Mm -hmm. But um, it can still be helpful as a tool um, and in other ways. But so many approaches to intercultural communication again take their starting point in this history I sketched before. Right, uh, the anthropologist came with the notion of culture, uh, of cultural relativism, and comparing cultures as 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 you call them ecosystems on a whole. Mm -hmm. um, which is useful in a way, but unuseful in another way. Because I mm. just said, if, if cultures don't meet what people do, mm. right, 
the chances of someone completely adhering to the cultural system that you associate them with yeah. are actually not that great, yeah. right? So many of these well-known uh, models that you've mentioned, many of them uh, actually developed by my fellow countrymen, um, like you mentioned, Hope Seda, Von Stolpenaars, there are nuances between these models as well, but at least their starting point very often is to say that we're going to kind of predict an interaction and analyze an interaction based on people's national membership, assuming that there is great coherence in the values, norms, and, and, and habits of the people within this group. And, okay, we can, we, you know, we only have one podcast, so I'm not mm. even going into the, the, the methodological or the mm. theoretical limitations of these models. But if we even look at it empirically, we just look at the at the actual data and we take it at face value, then people have done what is known as meta-analysis and looked at all the evidence of these kind of models. And they've seen, yes, it is possible to find patterns in values and habits and norms mm. based on this data mm. in national groups. Mm. But A, the differences within these countries are bigger than between them. Mm. And B, there are other collective memberships like um, um, education level, like organizational membership, like profession, like income, mm. et cetera, mm. that are better predictive of these values, norms, and habits than mm. nationality. So and I think I just, I just I just need to that first one you said. I think uh, I don't want to gloss over that. That the difference okay. within a culture yeah. is oftentimes bigger than between cultures. That's what you. That's what you're saying. Well, let's let's replace culture with nationality mm-hmm. uh, because if we use culture as a very broad concept, it can also refer to our organization. It can mm-hmm. also refer to our professional group, etc. Right. So, on the level of nationality, at mm-hmm. least, mm-hmm. which is what culture is normally associated with, yeah, uh, at least in these models, it is. Then, even empirically, and again, there's also lots of theoretical and methodological criticism of these models, mm-hmm. uh, even though they have their merits. You know, I'm happy. I'm, I'm, I used to be very critical, but I'm older now and I'm milder. But even if, <laughs> yeah, yeah. if we acknowledge their merits, we have to and we have to see the, for the criticism for what it is as well. And even just again, if we take them at face value, the differences within national groups are bigger than between them. Mm. So to say, let's say you're an Australian, you're going to interact with a person from China. You know, the 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 the, the encouragements of these models will be to say, okay, then you just look up how you score as an Australian, and let's say power distance, right, which is your mm-hmm. sense of hierarchy, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is, you know, presumably by this model very low, and you meet a Chinese person, mm. and presumably their uh, association or, or interpretation of hierarchy is much higher, mm. that, that may make sense in a collective sense, but on the individual level, that's a very, very dangerous uh, uh, expectation or, or, or assumption to make, because there's huge differences within these groups, mm. Mm. bigger than between them. Yeah. So the chance of you actually meeting someone that completely conforms to, let's say, let's call it what it is, the stereotype that could come forward from these models is actually, even statistically, mm. quite small. Mm. Mm. Yeah. If, we, if we look at the evidence that these models are based on. Which is why cultures do not meet. People do, right? Thank you. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, but, <laughs> and, and, and I mean, uh, uh, I know I keep referring to it. Uh, I, I just love it because it, 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 when, I, when I deliver these lessons, it allows me to pin that up as the principal statement that I then will go to because, you know, where I, the courses that I teach, uh, a lot of them really rely on person-to-person communication, right? And Mm. what this allows me to then start peeling back on is, well, hold on, we're all human, right? What are some of the fundamental human 
Yeah, and you know, and oftentimes we'll go to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, even though you know mm. um, there's been some work done uh, to 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 refine Maslow's thinking, and you know, he certainly never had a pyramid. Uh, as or we never pictured it as a pyramid, no, as we right? Right, uh, as many of these theories, yeah, yeah. But it, but it's certainly, but it's certainly a very helpful tool to then set into context. Okay, so you know, why do people do different things? You know, what 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 be, what is driving this behavior? And as we said right. before, every behavior in whatever ecosystem has its roots uh, in 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 a cause. And if you can start peeling back on which particular need. You know whether whether it's a security need, or the physiological, uh, uh, emotional, spiritual, whatever type of need it actually meets. Once we start understanding that, we can actually connect to that person, as opposed to trying to right. view them through uh, uh, six dimensions uh, or okay. seven dimensions or whatever. You know, depending on which book we pick up, uh, and try to kind of score them in there. Undoubtedly, we swim in that. Undoubtedly, all of us swim in that. It certainly leaves its traces. Uh, and I always say to people, it's always good to have that knowledge in the back of your mind, right. you know, because that's the context. That is the social context the person lives in or swims right. in, but you can still touch the person, right? You can still right. build a bridge. Yeah. Exactly. One thing I'd like to mention before I get mm-hmm. to the model then is, mm-hmm. is how new culture in our, in our approach is to say it basically gives people a repertoire. Mm. Right. So um, it's our frame of reference with which we go through life of things that we are familiar with. Right. Mm. And that's why, again, you can see these patterns on a national level because they do form our frame of reference. Right. So it's as you call it, it's our ecosystem. It's what we're used to. But that doesn't define or predict how we personally, individually act on those things. Mm. So I may be used to people going camping and eating raw herring because I'm a Dutch person. It doesn't I hate both of these things myself, mm-hmm. but I'm familiar mm. with them. So if you engage with me on the level of, you know, you probably do these things yourself, then it's wrong. If it's you think it's my frame of reference and you're curious how I act on these things, mm. that is a much better way. Yeah. So I'm not saying all of this knowledge is completely useless, but again, it, it's it's a background for reflection and to learn. I mean, it's mm. learn about ourselves and then to engage with people that are different. Mm. That's, yeah. sorry for the long-winded introduction. That's where the model comes in. No, that's great. Yeah, yeah. But what, what makes the model different then, again, it doesn't, it doesn't emphasize culture as such, but it emphasizes communication. Mm. Mm. TOPO is an acronym that stands for different levels where communication can get distorted, mm. in particular in what we see as intercultural interactions, but basically it goes for any interaction. It's just that we apply it on what we see as intercultural interactions, mm. um, where, again, and that's where the disclaimer is, that our intention is absolutely not to tell people you need to TOPOI Mm. every interaction now from beginning to end no uh because that will slow down your natural spontaneous communicative Mm. competences that you already have as a human being but as we said to engage in dialogue to be aware of what you take for granted which may not be taken for granted for the other person and vice versa Mm. that you have different reference points different social realities in which you live but that you can connect and try to understand each other and then if communication breaks down Topo is a tool to figure out where that might come from. Mm. Mm. You have these five levels or areas that you can use as a kind of scan, or we've also envisioned it as a lens to zoom in on a miscommunication, Mm. a communication breakdown, and try to figure out what could I do to repair that or to improve that. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So so what what, what does the acronym stand for? Right. So Topo is... uh, 
uh, incidentally or not completely incidentally, uh, also <laughs> Greek for the places, right? Mm -hmm. So it's also the places where communication takes place and can break down. And in a way, uh, culture, culture exists on all these levels, but maybe more pronounced on some of them than in others. Mm. And on every level, on every area, there's three re reflective questions, which is, what am I doing that makes the other act, person act this way? Mm. What is the other person doing that makes me act this way? And what is happening in the social context that makes us act this way, which is what mm. we call systems theoretical approach, which means that we assume communication is always flowing back and forth. Mm -hmm. And it's mm -hmm. easy to say that person is acting that way because he's just like this or she is just like this or they are just like this. But we could also say, well, maybe I'm doing something that makes this person mm -hmm. act this way. So uh, I'm building up the tension for the acronym, you know. This right? but <laughs> You're doing well. Way, You're you know, doing well. <laughs> let's say that I'm lecturing a class and I'm asking questions and the class is completely silent, right? Then the easy way out is to think, oh, there's something wrong with these students. Mm. Why aren't they speaking up? They must be tired or lazy, uninterested or stupid, right? Which mm. is our first intuition. And, you know, this, this approach would, would force me to think, um, what am I doing or not doing that stimulates them to ask, to answer and to ask mm, questions? Mm, mm, mm. Right. So the first question is with me. And what is, you know, how are they impacting me? Maybe in a way, maybe they're doing something subconscious that makes me act in that way, that makes them not invite me. And there's maybe something in the social context. Maybe something happened in the news last night. Maybe that, you know, uh, uh, student allowances just got cut last night and they have something completely different in their mind, right? It might be neither of our folks. And we apply this in all five levels in the acronym. So the T stands for tongue and has to do with everything in language. So something we often forget, aside from culture, there's linguistic differences between mm. people, which impacts our understanding. Um, we may speak in a, in a lingua franca that, mm. that neither of us has a high command of or one of us has a high command of, right? Uh, which, which impacts our communication, whether we like it or not. I feel this every time uh, I speak to a British person, for example. Uh, yeah. you know, I, 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 and, and they will use catchphrases and jokes I can't come up with, right? Yeah. We had a colleague, for example. No, he was very, uh, he was very empathetic in that sense, but yeah. But, you know, if they speed up, you know, I'm lost. And it's a, it's a really good point because, I mean, I th again, I think something as native English speakers, certainly in Australia, uh, it was something I've brought up uh, a few times is, is to bring awareness to it. That in a, in, a, in a coalition environment where English is the dominant language, there is a power differential that comes purely through the fluency with which one can command the dominant language. That brings power. Uh, and you see those who don't necessarily command the language as well, firstly lose confidence, but also on the other side from us as the dominant speakers, it's very easy for us to ascribe less favorable traits to those people purely because they don't speak the language, right? Oh, right. They're just, you know, they're, they're shy, they're not confident or, you know, they're stupid. Or, or whatever they have nothing to say. They have nothing to say, right? Exactly, yeah. exactly right. Yeah. Very easily conflate uh, linguistic ability with intelligence. Mm. Yeah. And then there's other things on a level of tongue. It might be accents that play a role, mm. right? And accents that we value differently. There are studies that would show that a lecture held by someone with a fluent, like a, a let's call it a native accent or a, mm. a non-native accent, the intelligence of the speaker is rated differently, right? Mm. So it, it affects us in certain ways. Um, mm. We might That's use so have different yeah. associations with words. 
right? What I mean by deadline might be different than what you mean by deadline. We have, might have a misunderstanding. You think a deadline means absolutely do not cross this point in time. And I think that line is kind of an indication more or less by then or not, you know? Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, and then there is other language, which is nonverbal language, which is everything that we say without words, mm -hmm. which is our intonation, our mm -hmm. body language, the clothes we wear, the rooms we meet, and all these things might communicate something yeah. to the other person that is not communicating to you yet. Mm. Um, so that's the whole you know, it's a very complex field, but a very, very yeah. important field that's very often overlooked. And, and having an awareness of that, I think, is is even just an awareness of that is a is a mass, massive head start because it, I think it forces and, and I think one of the other mistakes we often make is we try to study other people and their and other mm -hmm. cultures and identify, you know, their traits, but we very rarely look in the mirror. Exactly. And look at ourselves, right? What is our yeah. own vulnerabilities? What are our own blind spots? What are our own social norms, habits, heuristics, exactly. behaviors that govern how we do things, how we speak? You know, what, you know, how is my accent perceived or how is my body language perceived? And we can't, we don't really have a right to judge or study someone else until we really understand ourselves. Uh, and I think, funnily enough, the moment you start, understanding yourself, you'll automatically develop more empathy, uh, you know, for someone else. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so then the next, uh, the O in the uh, acronym, mm -hmm. what's, what's O stand for? Stand for order, which means our views and logics. So it's basically, this is where, again, culture is somehow relevant in all these fields, but in, here it's the most explicit. Mm -hmm. So this, this field very explicitly asks us, how do we view the world? And what is our logic through which we view the world? What do we take for granted? What do we find normal in terms of hierarchy, in terms of how we view time, right? Mm. I, I'm fascinated by time because when you mm. think of it, time doesn't exist, right? It's a human invention to coordinate. Yeah. But th there is no such thing as time. We invented mm. it. Mm. So if you realize that, it makes it much easier to, to realize that what you see as time is different than what other people see as time, mm. right? And what kind of... Um, 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 uh, notice people think you know what kind of time frame people have in mind mm. and how they experience mm. that is vastly different mm. um, and how, how important it is to them and how important yeah mm. um, there is other things like gender relations is one thing but you know one famous thing is is what often goes under the, the, the flag of you know, individualism and collectivism and mm -hmm. I have some problems with those terms but at least the notion of how much do we cultivate right so I think culture one way to think of culture is it's, it's cultivation. It comes mm -hmm. from the Latin word cultura, which means to cultivate, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not to say that people in what we call individualistic societies are egoists and don't think of other people and people in collect what we call collective societies, even if I don't like those terms, mm -hmm. don't have any self-interest, but it's what, what is cultivated in a group. So we mm -hmm. can cultivate, uh, you know, which happens in, in what we call Western societies. We often cultivate a sense of self, mm -hmm. our individual path, our individual development our individual responsibilities and whatnot mm, mm. and other people might cultivate social harmony they might cultivate uh their belonging in a group etc cetera, etc cetera, fitting into a group mm. without saying that they don't have, any, have anything of the other side right yeah but it does shape our again our our view of self and others and perhaps you know our behavior if you if i view I think a personal development is very important and i feel very comfortable talking about that for example in a job interview I might assume if I'm interviewing someone that is that has you know 
been been socialized in a worldview that cultivates social harmony and modesty and and, and loyalty. Mm. I might judge that person as, but this person doesn't have any ambition. Mm. And that person might just be thinking I'm trying to be modest. Mm. Right. So we have different worldviews and different logics and different things we take for granted in situations. And that's what the first O stands for. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And again, that resonates so strongly with me. And again, it's it's how how we've how we've ordered the world that we live in. Um, exactly. It's, it's it explain you know it it explains how the world works right. It's the, mm-hmm. it's, the it's the architecture of a particular society or a, or mm-hmm. a particular ecosystem. Uh, and if you don't invest the time and effort to understand the order, how people see the world in that in a particular space, environment, social yeah. group, ecosystem, etc., uh, then you have really no chance of understanding or building a true bridge of understanding. Uh, right. with their worldview. Um, right. Okay, so uh, so moving on. So what's the P stand for? The P stands for persons. So this stands for identity and relations, which is another thing I think is very often overlooked or, or underestimated or under-conceptualized in intercultural theory um, because it stands for the level of, you know, what we call the relationship level of communication. So we have a task level or a content level of communication in, in theory where we exchange you know, what we're doing now in a podcast, right? We're talking, we're do- deep diving into content. We're talking, you know, it's about the message that we want to deliver, mm-hmm. right? So we'll, we'll say to someone, you did a really good job, you know, uh, which is the message I want to deliver. But there's a relationship level where we communicate how we see the other person or more complicatedly, where the other person might interpret mm-hmm. how he or she is seen. So even a well-meant compliment, like you did a really good job, might on the relationship level communicate to this other person, oh, you didn't expect that from me. Mm. Did you have mm. low expectation? Mm. You know? Mm. Mm. Um, yeah, and, of course. and I think, you know, if if we if we see that through an intercultural lens and we see that in the context of, of cultural diversity or ethnic, national, religious diversity, I think it immediately becomes apparent that what we communicate about how we see the other person is essential. Mm. And I think a lot of misunderstandings can be brought back to these aspects where, because, you know, how we see other people is, is, is partly shaped by what we call uh, social representations or single stories or narratives or discourses that we, that we're fed from society or fed from, from global, global influences. Hmm. Um, And that builds expectations of what we have of other people. Uh, And very often unconsciously, we project that in certain people and we have certain expectations of, oh, this person is from this or this group, so they're probably very conservative or, oh, they're from this group, so they've probably never heard of this Netflix show that I watch every day or mm-hmm. um, we don't how even do we overcome that? That's how, do we, or, how do we overcome that? Because that's a, that strikes me as a particularly real problem and one that's, yeah. you know, because it's, it is, we live in stories and yeah. stories that explain the world. So how do yeah. we challenge that? bias i guess yeah um well part of the answer is uh, unfortunately is a, is a sad truth is that we don't we mm. don't completely overcome it at least right because we can't because we have it for a reason right we, we 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 have expectations in our mind of people we categorize people for a reason which is probably you know our cognitive survival because we, mm. we would go nuts if we would mm. have to judge every bit of information on its own merits mm. Mm. um so we can't completely overcome it um, we can we can become more mindful of it though of the process itself 
uh, of the narratives that surround us. There's a, a scholar in Sweden that calls it discourse awareness. We can become more aware and recognize the discourses that we're fed about groups of people and about society and about others and become more critical of it. And we can start to recognize those moments when it impacts our communication. Mm, mm, mm. So it takes a critical awareness and it takes efforts. And it, first of all, takes the recognition, which is the most important step, that we are affected by this. Mm. So I've had people in programs that, uh, and I'm not making this up, that you know, you do an introductory round in the beginning, who are you, mm. why you're here? And sometimes people would literally say, I don't know why I'm here because I don't have any stereotypes. I don't have any biases. I don't need this training. Mm. And my answer is always, okay, then you need to go to a lab now and get yourself examined because you're not a human being. Mm. Right? Mm. So the first step is we need to do is to accept that we you know, unavoidably have this stuff in our heads everyone every single human being has mm. and then to work from there um, there's a quote i love to use um and i normally don't say who it's from in my lectures and and you know if people listen to my lecture afterwards don't give the clue to others but um <laughs> quote that says something of you know someone once said i saw that the pilot was black and i had to suppress my panic how could a black man ever fly a plane mm. And I'll do a round of expectations who uttered this extremely biased, prejudiced phrase. Last couple of years, the standard answer was Donald Trump. I don't know who they'll come up with mm. next, but <laughs> and the actual answer is it's, it was Nelson Mandela hmm. um, who admitted that he himself was, was impacted by what he called his apartheid conditioning, mm. Mm. that he himself had absorbed the stereotypes of, of his own group on their level of intelligence and competence and made him panic when he saw the pilot in the plane he was going to fly was black and wondered, will I survive? Yeah. And my message is always on a, it's on two levels. It's on the one hand, if Nelson Mandela has this, who are you to say that you are immune to this? Mm. Right. Mm. And on the other level, you can be impacted by this and still pretty, be a pretty decent human being and do good things for the world. Yeah. Um, and again, very often in our communication, we incidentally and implicitly communicate these kind of expectations, uh, these kind of things. And if we're not aware of that, you know, um, it might do damage. And if we are aware of it, it might still do damage. And my, you know, I'm also, I want to steer away also from another discourse, which makes everyone you know, guilty and culpable and, and, mm. and, and, you know, find easy ways to point at victims and perpetrators and guilty and innocent people. That's not my intention at all. Mm. My intention is to say, we're all impacted by this. Yeah. We need to be open to the, opportunity the the the, the 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 yeah the the option that it impacts our communication and because it's almost unavoidable if that happens to say okay i'm sorry i messed up said something wrong or or actually maybe my my understanding is biased can you help me understand yeah and instead of you know revolting in or or, or how do you say uh um, resorting to a kind of self-pitying of oh I'm, I'm such a bad human being that's not what this is about yeah no i, I agree and i think there's a i think the uh, idea of biases biases are they're useful we have them for a reason i mean you're making that point yeah. you know there, there there's evolutionary reason in in protecting protecting the in-group versus the out-group you know yeah. we you know i hear it so often and i and i and i've seen this quote in various ways but you know we what is it um uh, uh we have our brain as it is now is a hundred thousand years old uh, yeah. You know, and it served us well then, and it's the same brain that we've got now, uh, except the world is vastly different. You know, a hundred thousand yeah. years ago, it made it made sense that anybody different signaled danger and threat, because yeah. you know we lived in small small groups. You know, and it was 
in my interest to protect my own group against the raiding other group, whoever they were, uh, who were going to steal our resources. And you know, and, and we have these this programming exists for a reason, but oftentimes in today's world it misfires and intercultural exactly. intercultural you know grouping is a natural setting where this system will misfire. Uh, exactly. But I think just knowing that that system exists and that that system is fundamentally good mm. right, because it is it is about self-preservation. Right. However, knowing that it's, hey, right now it's misfiring uh, and yeah. why, you know, how yeah. am I contributing? Or, you know, yeah, Exactly. No, absolutely. And, and at the same time, that system is fed by certain social representations. Yeah. And yeah. we can change the system. But well, we can challenge the social representations that we're mm. fed. Um, there was, I even read a paper the other day, which made me think, because I've also thought about this uh, as bias for a long time, but I read a, a, uh, an article by a, a British linguist that actually uh, protested against the whole notion of bias in this context, because he says not necessarily a bias in terms of, you know, that means it's a distortion of reality, but he, he basically focused on, we are fed social representations mm -hmm. that, that, that make us predict reality in a certain way. Mm, mm, without saying mm. there's a right or a wrong way to see that we build an expectation and that in itself is is a normal human thing but it might not serve us and it might not uh, do justice to the people that we actually meet right mm, so mm, mm. yeah um there's a funny inverted relationship for me about the more that i've learned about cultures and cultural differences because there is knowledge to acquire and it helps us to build scenarios and expectations mm, mm. Uh, of possibilities at least right yeah but at the same time you know what it's done for me is that it takes away many of the expectations to say like well it's so complex i have no idea who's across the table mm. let me find out and i have scenarios and opportunities in my head that i may like hmm, maybe it's something like this maybe it's something like that but it makes me less and less convinced that i'm right and i i, I increasingly laugh about myself that so many of the interactions i have do not at all confirm the expectations that mm. have been developed in my head. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's, that's, that's spot on. It's a, it, it, it just it's slightly unrelated, but it triggered a, a thought in me. And that's how, you know, Brené Brown's definition of empathy, which I really like, mm. uh, and how we build empathy with people from vastly different backgrounds, circles to our own is to try and connect uh, to the emotion underpinning an experience as opposed to the experience itself, uh, mm. which is, which, which I think speaks to that, point slightly in the sense that it's about realizing what 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 is the programming that I'm carrying mm. about about this person what am I projecting on this person that's shaping and influencing how I how I understand them yeah. but the reality is I haven't walked in their shoes I haven't lived their lives I haven't no. you know I, everything I have in my mind is merely a projection but what I can do is I can connect to the emotion that they felt because we all feel same, the same emotions. You know, yeah, we yeah. all feel fear, joy, sadness, etc. It just might be, might have been produced in different circumstances. And to build right. a connection to somebody, you know, about a particular, you know, we've, we've all lost somebody we love, right? So it's just mm -hmm. whether, you know, in, and this is, you know, in a military context, whether they're, you know, that, that counterpart that I'm, that I'm working with in, in Iraq, uh, whether, you know, their family was killed in war uh, and mine died a peaceful death, the emotion, the sadness, the anguish, 
is still the same. Uh, And that's where we can connect, right? That's where I can see the person, understand the person. I can never understand or try to pretend to understand what it feels like to lose your family in a suicide bomb attack or whatever, right? But I can connect to the pain, the anguish, you know? And I think that's a, so that's kind of, it was a long way, long way around, but, 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 but but I do think that there's a link to, you know, how, how we see a person, you know, and, and, and I guess to the P of the, uh, of the topo model. It's a very clear link. And also, uh, thanks for building that bridge because I said the P is for person, for, for identity and relationship. Mm. And what you, you addressed there very beautifully is this aspect of relationship where beyond all these perceptions, we can build a connection of trust with people. Mm. And mm. I think also in many ways, if we do manage to build that human to human relationship, a lot of the faux pas as they're seen mm. you know, in terms of cultural etiquette or in terms of you know, the stereotypes I might have about people will be forgiven if I have that connection and that, yeah. that trust and relationship. So mm. the question is also, have I focused on that sufficiently, right? So I see international cooperation sometimes go wrong. Again, especially nowadays, we've all been online. But mm. um, if you only communicate with a counterpart uh, without ever meeting them face-to-face, sitting down over a meal, exchanging, you know, information about our lives, um Everything becomes about negotiations and the yeah. nitty-gritty stuff, right? Yeah. But once we meet human to human, you will almost all situations. So this is a deeply human phenomenon, it will go a lot easier. Yeah, that's and again. It's I, an investment. Yeah, exactly. And I have to again bring in another another uh anecdote that comes to mind, and that's uh, in a previous life when I worked in the uh liaison space uh, in the military, and we used to refer to it as the rapport bucket. Um, mm. you know, and we, 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 you know, this was passed down to us as, as, as a way to think about interpersonal connection. So every person mm. you meet, imagine this completely empty bucket between you and that person. Mm. And your goal is with every interaction you have with that person is to pour just a little bit of rapport into that bucket. And you build that rapport by the things that you're saying, you know, to, to get to know the person, you know, ask about them. Um, find out about their family, about their friends, about their interests. Yeah, right, You'll find right. that there's a lot of similarities, even though overtly you might be completely different. But you know, exactly. you, you might both love football, right? And there's, mm-hmm. you know, you can certainly pour a lot of rapport, you know, if you follow the same football club, or you know, if you yeah. have, if you both have dogs, or whatever it is. And mm. the goal being that you know you build such a dense relationship, such dense rapport with that person that that imaginary bucket is overflowing. Mm. And when that bucket is overflowing. Like you were saying, you know, that's a that, that's when you've got genuine trust. If you make a faux pas, cultural or otherwise, you're going to just take a little scoop out of that rapport bucket, you know. But the rapport bucket is so full that it'll be just laughed at. Whereas if you haven't invested into that rapport bucket, where you haven't poured any, you know, like you were saying, you didn't work on that relationship on that trust, and the rapport bucket is empty, a faux pas you make. Mm. It's going to be detrimental to that re- relationship exactly. because yeah. you have no you have no excess rapport that you can no. that, that you can use. There's no buffer. No, that's right. Yeah, exactly. You're, yeah. You're, 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 you've shot a hole in the uh, in the bucket. Um, but yeah, that's a, that's an anecdote that we use quite a lot and have used in the past, and uh, uh, I've always found it yeah. quite useful in my own interpersonal engagements. Um, yeah. I'm just conscious of our time as well. Uh, I'm loving this. You know, right. I, I could I could do this for for three days, uh, but. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, and we have we have done this uh, for you know three days in, in the past. Exactly. But uh, what is the second O in the uh, in the model? Sure, uh, that stands for organization. And interestingly enough, that was actually originally not in the model because the model is 
to make things more complicated, it's an application of a well-known communications approach by Paul Watzlawick, mm-hmm. uh, which has four dimensions. And, and we, cannot, uh, we cannot not communicate, right? Exactly. Yeah, that that's guy. one of <laughs> that guy. And um, organization was originally not part of that. Uh, but we've just seen in so many case analyses that the organizational context was so pivotal to what was going on that people focused on, oh, is this an issue of identity? Is this an issue of language? Is this an issue of culture? No, it's just a, you know, a problem in the organization. You know, to give the most extreme example, one of the most extreme examples I've seen was an NGO that had an office in, in Latin America. Uh, and they were in the Netherlands in their head office. And uh, they requested an intercultural training about this country specifically because they felt nah, communication is not going so, so, you know, it's not going very well. Mm. Uh, and we said, okay, but can you tell us about the problems? And they said, yeah, there seems to be distrust and maybe it's something in their culture. And we, okay, that's it. But first, let's analyze what's going on and what the situation is. And what turned out, and they forgot about this. Don't ask me how, but they had actually had doubts about the integrity of this office and ordered uh, an in- integrity investigation of this office. Hmm. And they were freed of all charges and forgot to tell them. Hmm. And they seemed distrustful in the communication afterwards. Well, <laughs> big surprise. Hmm. Um, so before you even need to bring in culture, aspects of cultural identity or, 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 or language, if yeah. that is the context in which you're operating organizationally, no wonder. Right, and of course, this this may get further amplified by linguistic, cultural, and identity issues. But the core of the problem, the root of the problem, is in this organizational issue, and we see that time and time again that uh, organizational issues are the root problem, and maybe they're amplified by these other things. But if you don't look at those issues, if you don't look at how clear, for example, is the organization in communicating something to a very diverse population, mm. there's a big chance that those things will be interpreted in all kinds of different ways, mm. right? Which, which is good to have understanding of those, of those other things and those other factors. But if, if the root of the problem is that you're not communicating it clearly from an understanding that people have other taken for granted assumptions and interpretations, mm. you know, it's going to... It's going to come back at you. Well, how does it, well, how does it, again, you know, without putting you on the spot too much, but how does one challenge that? Because it seems, you know, coming back to this kind of cultural relativism piece, mm-hmm. we can't, we can't accommodate every possible relativistic no. view. No, right? no, no. And, and no. that's, and that's not, what, I know that's not what you're saying, but yeah. how do we, how do we then help those who are crafting, drafting the messages to, yeah. you know, get the most out of it? Well, you know, sometimes it's also just about clarity and, and explicitness, right? So uh, classic examples, I've worked with a lot of schools, and then you have schools that, for example, decide that they start, they, they organize a camp in the beginning of the academic year, right? And um, this was a school, and was it, this was for higher education in the Netherlands, right, where, where, you know, uh, F, F, you know, new students were about 17 years old. Mm. Many of them lived with their parents. Mm. And they would start a camp, organize a camp in the beginning of the academic year and uh, this was compulsory this was mandatory and it involved the sleepover in unsupervised dormitories mm. students start to protest against that because their parents didn't allow them and in this case the majority of those students had an immigrant background mm. uh, and you can try to understand that like oh they're morally conservative and whatnot and religious and which is you know maybe part of their motivation maybe there are other motivations we don't really know but the end of the story was that it became this very strong us versus them scenario. They need to adapt. We set the standards here. We only change if we want to, et cetera, et cetera. 
Whereas, you know, one of the first questions was that I had, did you communicate to students before they signed up for your program Hmm. that there was a mandatory camp with unsupervised dormitories? No, we had not, right? So even if you decide that this camp, I mean, I would take issue with that person to say it's essential for for succeeding this program that you need to to go to a camp with unsupervised dormitories. But even if you do, the least thing you can do is then communicate, if you sign up for this program, this is what you're going to get. And if it mm. objects to your moral views of the world, okay, then it's not for you, mm. right? Mm. That, that exists, right? Uh, it sounds a bit cheesy, but, you know, yeah. uh, some people have said, you, you don't apply for a, a, to a sausage factory if you're a vegetarian. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a bit of a cheesy, what, uh, cheesy one-liner, but it, there's truth in that. Like, mm. sure, not everyone can cater to everyone. Yeah. The least thing we can do is be clear yeah honest and upfront uh, about yeah. yeah absolutely uh and then the last uh, the last i right it stands for intentions and mm-hmm. in a way it's it's maybe the you know in, in a dialogical sense the most important one because that's where we look at what actually drives people in a certain context why do they do what they do mm. with uh you know one of the mottos that we have is what is called as the hypothesis of the best which means that in the end of the day, everyone has good intentions. Hmm. It sounds incredibly naive, I know. And hmm. I'm not saying that those good intentions coincide with what you think is good. Hmm. But it's good, it's logical, it makes sense from their view of the world. They are hmm. doing what they think is the right thing to do. Yeah. Um, we quote in the book, uh, I forgot her name, but there's a CIA agent, a former CIA agent who turned hmm. uh, human hmm. rights activist. Hmm who says in a, in, a, in a very convincing video interview that, you know, the one thing she learned from her work at CIA is everyone think that they, thinks that they are the good guys, hmm. right? Again, and that, make them do, that may make them do things that are, in your view, or even in a, in a common human view, abhorrible. Yeah. But what they're doing is they, are, they think that they are doing the right thing. Hmm. And if that is your starting point, that makes you curious about people's motivations. Mm. And it makes you potentially able to recognize those intentions without agreeing with their effects. So we need to distinguish between effects and the intentions. But people are generally doing what they think is right, what they Mm. think is best. Mm. We may not agree with it, and we don't have to agree with it, but we can try to understand it. So there's a difference, again, between understanding and agreeing. Mm. And specifically, we also look at how much are we uh, actively recognizing their perspective. Are we trying to understand what they're coming from and also recognize that they have good intentions, that they're trying to do the right thing? So these students that ask for exceptions that they don't want to come to these camps, even if we don't agree with their motivations, we mm. can say, okay, we can understand that you feel awkward about this from your point of view. And and, and we can see that unsupervised dormitories are are controversial you know, mm-hmm. from your point of view and that, that there's a problem with that for you. However, you know, yeah, we have our reasons for doing this. Again, yeah, I have my own motivations. There's two right. holes in that argumentation from my personal point of view. Yeah. But again, if, even if you would take that point, right? Or other things that I've seen of students that ask exceptions because they feel, uh, you know, uh, that 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 a, a class about evolution theory, right, is not mm. for them because they, you know, from their religious point of view, they mm. don't agree with evolution theory. Mm. Mm. You don't have to agree with it to show recognition. Okay, understand from your worldview, you know, mm-hmm. that you don't agree with that. And the point is actually you don't have to agree with it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a yeah. theory. Right? We can discuss it. Mm-hmm. But I can recognize that they are trying to do the morally right thing from their point of view without having to agree with it. Yeah. And then there's different patterns we can we can run to recognition, but very often it leads to dismissal, 
It's like, ah, just don't be so difficult. Uh, you know, show me in your holy book where it says you can't follow this class. Or why are the students that have the same religious backgrounds? They don't have any problems with it. Why, you know, just listen to them. Yeah. And that, that just ends up in what we call a truth battle, a battle of truth. So it's my truth versus your truth. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and uh, one of the other wide liners we have is sometimes the, the shortcut is the way around. So by going hmm. around, we get easier to result than immediately going Mm. Uh, up front of the yeah, I, I, I like that, and I really like the this idea of motivation. And, and it's, we've kind of touched on it already, but it, you know, it seems to me that motivation lies at the root of all conflict. You know, it's my motivation; it's whatever motivates me that's clashing mm. with what's motivating you. Um, yeah. And I think, again, we spoke about this earlier. But if we really want to understand human behavior, we need to understand what motivates it, uh, what needs and desires. Uh, 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 driving that motivation and mm. therefore driving that behavior. Uh, yeah. So I think it's quite neat that you know you made the point that intentions uh, perhaps is the one of the principal pillars of uh, of the model. And I also do understand why you don't like models. Uh, yeah, you know we we also don't want to fall into the trap of saying, yeah, here's a model, apply this. No, it's just a it yeah. it, it it should serve as a trigger. It should serve exactly. as a you know force you to take a pause and. Well, here's some considerations for you, as opposed to it's a, it's a cheat sheet, right? Rather than exactly. you know a, a, a map to follow, so to speak. Yeah. Um, but maybe you can uh, give us an example of how you would apply or how you have applied, you know, the tongue order, persons, organization, intentions mm-hmm. uh, in intercultural settings. Sure. Um, so you're looking for like a case example or something? Yeah, like a case study that that that, that would kind <clears> of <throat> that would that would you know, bring this to life on how somebody listening to this uh, could really, you know, try to use it. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, let me think quickly. Well, one example that we like to use is from an educational context, but I think you can make the translation to other contexts as well, um, where there was a, a study counselor who uh, was talking to a student uh, of immigrant background in this case. And um, this was in the Netherlands. And the student had failed the class. Uh, because she was, quote, unquote, not assertive enough in the classes. And she was at the study counselor, and they talked about this. And then uh, this was also by the student, a student, by the way, that had a a light handicap. Um, And in the conversation, at some point, the study counselor asked her, is this because of your culture that you find it difficult to be assertive? And the student said, yes, I find it difficult to speak up against my parents at home as well. And the study council all of a sudden felt trapped because you realized, okay, if that's, it goes against her culture, then, then can we actually demand of our students to be assertive? And on the other hand, we did agree that was an important part of our education, that it makes students assertive. So there's a, there's a, mm. a conflict. But again, at the same time, if it contradicts with her culture and potentially the culture of many other students, maybe we can't hold on to this, right? So you see the classic relativistic mm. clash there. Uh, with no way out. And you could say he set up a trap for himself. Mm. And if I'm cynical, maybe a little bit of an easy way out for her to say, well, okay, yeah, this is the end of the story. And um, when we analyze that, we said there's all kinds of things that could be going on that can be explored. So if we follow the order of the the model, the T for tongue, are there linguistic aspects to this? Could it be that, you know, assertiveness means that she's not speaking up in class? Mm. Could it be linguistic ability? Could it be that she doesn't feel comfortable enough speaking up? On the other level, on the more core level, what does assertiveness actually mean, right? 
have is is that clear to everyone? It does assertive mean the same thing to to, to every to every person to every people involved? What do we actually mean by that? Do we mean that people voice their opinion in class? That's a lot more of a clear label than just saying you need to be assertive. On the level of order, there can be different perspectives and worldviews in terms of how you view your relationship to others, uh, how, again, like we discussed, how, how cultivated, you know, cultivated worldview of, of personal development and personal opinions versus a cultivated worldview of, of social harmony where you might not want to speak up to offend someone. Mm. Mm. This is where probably normally people would dwell. And I would say it's one of the options, but there's other things. On, on the P level, what is the student's relationship to other students? And the fact that she has a small handicap, by the way, is not even discussed. Maybe that makes her uncomfortable in class. Maybe that's not accommodated for. Maybe mm. that makes it difficult mm. for her to speak up. Mm. On the level of organization, again, what does assertiveness mean? And why is it part of the program? Why have we organized in such a way that we judge students on the basis of assertiveness? Have we mm. explained to them what mm. it means? I think there can be good reasons because it was an HR program. To mm -hmm. say students need to be able to voice their opinion, right? Mm -hmm. Because as an HR opinion, a person, you're obviously often speaking up against other concerns in the organization that go beyond HR. Sure, you need to be able to voice your opinion in a in a you know, considerate dialogue. Um, but that's a much more clear competence than just being assertive. And again, like we talked about before, is this clearly defined in the beginning of the program? No, it wasn't. Is it explained to students how they will be judged on this and what they need to do to adhere? No, it wasn't. And the level of intentions. What does she want, right? What is her motivation? And actually, when they asked her, is that she wanted to change herself. She said, I find it difficult to speak up against my parents. Mm. But does that mean, per definition, that you can't learn to voice your opinion in other contexts? Is she motivated to do that or not? And she was. It bothered her that she couldn't do this. Mm. Mm. So then, again, you have a constructive dialogue instead of just stopping at, oh, it's her culture or not. And that means, you know, there's some kind of, magical line that makes us unable to change and and so in the end of the day she did go to a course to learn to voice her opinion more clearly and to you know while being considerate and, and avoiding conflict still speaking her mind mm. and the organization the program uh, decided to be much more clear on what they expected how they measured this and 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 how it actually played a role in this professional context that they were preparing students to, to, mm. to, to work in yeah i mean it comes down to really knowing what what are your requirements? What are you trying to get out of a particular interaction relationship? Um, you know, and, and to know that will help you really develop the path to get there. Um, yeah. And again, I, I know that we're really pushing up on the on our hard right shoulder, but maybe one last question that's uh, sure. perhaps for my audience, which is mostly military, you know, mm. uh, emergency uh, workers, frontline workers, for any of those going into intercultural situations who might not mm. have the time to go and, uh, you know, read books about culture or learn right. about, right. you know, all the places that they're going to go to because that unfortunately takes the back seat when other priorities are placed upon you and that's, you know, uh, mm. you know, life or death type questions. Arguably, this should be on there uh, and that's one of the things that I'm arguing for. Mm. But given that it's unfortunately at the moment not yet the case, how would you recommend, what is the best way to prepare for cultural shock for, mm -hmm. you know, if, if your aim is to build relationships right. with other cultures? Right. Very easy question for you there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, you know, uh, <laughs> I was <laughs> 
it might sound a bit, uh, how should I put it, simplistic or maybe even confronting, I don't know. But really the lesson, I think I've mentioned that before, but really the lesson that I've learned from all of this is try to engage without a sense of superiority. And, and this sense of superiority, that sounds a bit harsh, but that can take very, very subtle shapes, right? Because we might, again, underestimate people's capabilities and intelligence. We might have all kind of notions and think of who they are. We might think very implicitly deep down that what we do is always better than what someone else does. We have, you know, this is again probably a human tendency. You, you phrased that very beautifully, that, that, that's tied down to our survival. Um, but at the same time, you know, part of our survival depends on how well we cooperate with other people. Mm, mm, mm. And for that, a sense of humbleness uh, and, and trying to, to tame this, this sense of superiority that we're often um, um, motivated by implicitly and communicate in very small ways, uh, that stands in the way of that cooperation. And at the same time, again, I, I, I can't very consciously say staring away from a sense of superiority because it doesn't mean that there is not always a better, that there's not sometimes a better way to do things, mm. right? Mm. We can think about, again, that's the ethical part. There's probably in, in many situations better ways to do things. Um, but if we communicate that from a sense of superiority, mm. it will be very difficult for other people to, to see that as well. If we see it as something that's in all of our benefit, mm. that I've learned the hard way, and yeah. I, as an individual and as a group, learned the hard way that other people can benefit from. Yeah. Then we can have a conversation, mm. right? It's like the human rights dialogue. I have, a, and I'm all in favor of human rights. But what often happens is that certain groups or nations appropriate human rights as their invention and teach the other rest of the world how to how to how to how to respect how to, human how rights. to human. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas if you look at the history of human rights, not to start that whole conversation, but mm. you know, mm. it came also out of huge flaws and atrocities. That happened in the West, hmm. and so to say, it's it's not the West's invention. It's it's a human invention that we hmm. can all benefit and learn from, and that we can yeah. all improve it. Yeah. That's a very different dialogue than to say, "I'm going to teach you how to do this," and that you know that happens on the micro level as well. So to have that humbleness without without excluding the option that there might sometimes be better ways to do things. Hmm. And again, that for me is only summarized by trying to steer away from this sense of superiority, but engage. Yeah. Otherwise. Wonderful note to end on. Adrian, it's been an absolute pleasure. And I, and I, and I can hear there's a, there's a little young person that's uh, been rather patient, <laughs> rather uh, patient. Uh, so then I think, I don't know uh, patient, but let's see. <clears throat> but I think you are, your, your uh, participation and your communication is uh, required elsewhere. Uh, but I really do want to thank you for giving me so much of your time. It's been wonderful and it's been uh, great My to catch pleasure. up with really. you. Uh, really. I feel like, uh, I feel like it was only yesterday when we were uh, sitting around coffee having these chats. But it was, wasn't wasn't it? It? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah now we're in opposite sides of the world, but again, uh, that's, that's globalization and intercultural communication. So yeah, exactly much. right. I really appreciate it, mate. And uh, yeah, we'll be in touch. Likewise. We'll be in touch. And, and again, many thanks for the interview. It was a really, really interesting conversation. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Voices of War. You can access all episodes on www.thevoicesofwar.com or by subscribing wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And while you're there, please give us a review as we'd love to hear what you think. If you'd like to recommend a guest for the show, you can reach me on info at thevoicesofwar.com.